Amen. Well, let's maintain just a mindset of worship right now as I read our passage for today, Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Church of Jesus, hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, we are here this morning to give praise to you our sovereign Lord and Savior, our God who created us. Lord, you have humbled us. (laughs) We are so weak before you. That has been made evident in the last two weeks, two months, two years. And Lord, we are so grateful that when we are weak, you are strong. When we are powerless, you are all-powerful. God, that brings comfort to our hearts. Lord, speak to your people today. Use me, Lord, as your imperfect instrument to teach the truth of your word. And may Psalm 8 sink deep into our hearts and change us. We pray in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. And if you want that church this morning, can you just say amen with me? Amen. Amen. Good. We'll go ahead and take a seat. Everybody tuning in online. Glad you're here. Welcome. We want to invite you to take your Bibles with those who are gathered here this morning and turn to the psalm I just read, Psalm chapter 8. That's where we'll be today. And just a quick note about next week's service. So next Sunday, I'm going to begin a new series on the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Vanity Fair. I've been looking forward to teaching this book. I've actually been wanting to preach Ecclesiastes for some time, and so we're going to begin that series next week, Vanity Fair. Make sure you're here or tuning in next week for that. Today, what I want to do is I want to finish up our summer series as elders, a new look at the Old Testament, and the capstone for this series is today's passage, a message today from Psalm chapter 8. And what I want us to do today as we look at Psalm 8 is I want us to meditate on just how weak we are as human beings. You might say, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, Pastor Tony. No, it'll be good. Trust me, you'll like it. Because in looking at how weak we are, we're also going to turn our eyes to how powerful God is. 
And you'll be amazed at how that gives you strength in the midst of your weakness. Today I've entitled our message from Psalm 8, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. That's an homage there to a song written by Rich Mullins many years ago. We are not as strong as we think we are. And I was kind of nervous about that sermon title because it's almost, it's almost too good. You know what I mean? It's like you hear that sermon title, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. You're like, yeah, okay, Pastor Tony, we get it, we get it. You, you don't even need to preach. That title's too good. And, and the truth of the matter is, we are learning right now in the midst of all of our struggles here in Central Illinois, here, here in our church, we are not as strong as we think we are. You know what? I thought I learned that lesson. I thought I knew that. I'm learning it in new ways right now. I know some of you are as well in our church. I texted someone this last week. I've been just checking on people who I know have come down with COVID and maybe got it for me. I don't know. I was feeling bad about it. And I texted someone in particular and I said, How, how's your family doing right now? And she wrote back to me with one word. She said, we feel puny right now. And I, I, I actually thought that was like a misspelling of something. I, you know how you text stuff on your phone and it corrects it for you? I thought she meant to say, we feel pukey right now. Like all my kids are barfing and throwing up. We're all sick. I feel pukey. And so I was like, are you sure puny? Is that what you meant to say? And she said, yes, I feel puny, meaning I feel small and frail and weak and not as strong as I thought I was. You know, even as I received that text message, I thought to myself, that's exactly how I feel. That is exactly how I feel right now. My puniness in this world is on display for all to see. I can't even get out of bed is how I felt a few times in the last couple weeks. I felt powerless. You know, when I look out on our world right now, when I see the tragedies taking place in Afghanistan, I feel powerless. I feel so small. And when I think about our country, and when I think about the moral compromises that are just taking place all over, I feel so, I feel so powerless. I feel so small. I feel the refrain of that song again. We are not as strong as we think we are. I am not as strong as I thought I was. And you know what? I don't like feeling that way because I'm Tony Caffey. I'm strong. I'm, I don't need anybody, or so I think. And you know what helped me this last week, as I, the last two weeks, as I have felt my puniness in ways like I've never felt it before? You know what helped me? Psalm 8 helped me. God's word helped me see who I am and who he is, and it brought comfort to me. And my prayer for these last few days as I've prepared this message is that Psalm 8 would bring comfort to you as well, wherever you are right now. You might be like, Pastor Tony, I feel great. I've never felt better. Everybody else feels bad. I feel great. Okay, good. Well, you probably need a healthy dose of Psalm 8 too. Just Put this away, because you're going to need it someday. Some of you I know, you need it right now. So we're going to look at this psalm together. But first, write this down in your notes. We're not as strong as we think we are. Three points in this message. 
because God's majesty overwhelms and overpowers us. That's what David writes in Psalm 8. God's majesty overwhelms and overpowers us. We are not as strong as we think we are, but praise God, God is stronger than we could ever imagine. Y'all with me this morning in here? All right? I know we're a little thin here, but I need some amens now. Come on now. God is stronger than we could ever imagine, even in the midst of our puniness. And look at how David frames this psalm. Everybody got your Bibles open? Let's, let's just look at this. Look at verse 1. What David does is he sandwiches this entire psalm between these, these two statements that are basically identical. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Everybody see that in verse 1? Now look at the sandwich. Look at the other slice of bread in verse 9 where David says the exact same thing with the same words. This is what's referred to as an inclusio in Hebrew poetry. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, he ends with. It's like a sovereignty sandwich, this psalm. So that everything inside of that sandwich you know is framed by God is awesome even when we are not. So, in case you forget, by verse 9, David tells you again, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And notice the two different words for God used here in verses 1 and 9. O Lord, our Lord. Everybody see that? You got capital L-O-R-D. You guys know capital L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh. That's the covenant God of the Israelites. We know Yahweh. Even as New Testament Christians, as the Trinitarian deity that chose us and loved us and bought us with Christ's blood. So we can say, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, Oh, Yahweh, you are our Lord. The great I am, Yahweh, you are our God. Now the second Lord here, so there's the first Lord and then there's the second Lord. The second Lord is a different Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word Adonai. And Adonai means sovereign ruler or powerful one. And what's, what's marvelous in verse 1 and verse 9 is that there's this possessive pronoun attached to this word Adonai for sovereign ruler. It's, just not, it's not just Adonai, it's Adonenu. You are our Lord. Our, it's, it's not like God is out there somewhere distant from us and oh yeah, that's the Lord, he's over there, but he's not our Lord, we're over here and we have no contact. No, he is our Lord. He is our sovereign ruler, our king. He's the one that we submit to and praise God. He he lives with us and he is among us and he is willing to call himself our Lord. And when we pray, we don't pray, oh Lord, the Lord over there, the God of the Israelites, the, the God who doesn't even bother with us. No, we pray, everybody with me? We pray, oh Lord, our Lord. Because we submit to him as ruler, we submit to him as sovereign, we submit to him as king. And he's our Lord, and we praise his name that is majestic in all of the earth. Listen, Harvesticator, when you pray, when you pray, do you think about God like this, the God of the universe, the creator of everything whose name is glorious in this earth? You should pray that way. And yet at the same time that he is this glorious, powerful ruler, he is, he is our Lord. We submit our lives to him, praise God that he willingly rules over us. Look at the second half of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Think about, for a second, everybody listen in, those of you tuning in right now, think about the expanse of the universe for just a second. Think about, this is, this is really good for your soul, by the way, when you just stop and think about this. Think about the billions and billions and billions of planets and suns and galaxies that are spread out before the world. And think about your own planet. How much of your own planet have you explored? Less than 1%, probably. And yet our planet, Earth, is an infinitesimal small blip on the map of the expanded universe. And you can go and see in a telescope galaxies and galaxies and galaxies. Our Milky Way galaxy is just one of billions. And it makes you feel so small. Actually, our sun, our sun, which is what, 93 million miles away and many, many, many times larger than our own planet, our sun is a blip on the map of the galaxies. It's barely anything. And this is the Lord. This is his creation that he rules over and the heavens testify to his glory. You think about God when you pray like that, and it's not like, you know, God is, is bigger than the universe or as big as the universe. God cannot even be spatially contained in anything. But he lets you know how powerful he is because when you look in a telescope, you see how small you are compared to all that he's created. That's what David is trying to get you to zero in on right here. Charles Spurgeon said it this way more than 100 years ago. You can read this. He said, astronomy shows us what an insignificant being, a human being, appears amidst the immensity of creation. Whew, that makes me feel small. Though he, man, is an object of the paternal care, God's care, and the mercy of the Most High, yet he is but a grain of sand to the whole earth when compared with the myriads of beings that people the amplitude of creation, seven billion people in our world and counting, right? Spurgeon says, what is the whole of this globe, this earth, in comparison to the hundreds of millions of suns and worlds which by the telescope have been glimpsed? What are they in comparison with the glories of the sky? Imagine if Spurgeon had access to the Hubble telescope in our day. He didn't even know how big the universe was 100 plus years ago. Think if he had access to it now, just how he would marvel us with his words and feel even smaller. And this is the God, the God who created this universe, who we pray to, and he listens to us, and he actually encourages us to commune with him and to talk with him, and he actually sent his son to die on the cross so that you might be saved. It boggles the mind. And all you have to do to truly understand this, at least in part, is step outside of your house at night and look at the stars in the sky and you look at the moon and you say, what an amazing testimony to the God of the universe who created this entire world and yet he still, I don't know why, loves me, little old me, and saves little old me. And by the way, this is just a reminder when you get saved. Have you given your life to the Lord? Have you received the free gift of salvation that Jesus gives? I want you to know that when you, when you come to Christ, you, you don't come to Christ as your Savior and then you turn him into, you know, your personal assistant. Oh, good, Jesus, thanks for coming into my life. Now, can you do all the things that I really wanted you to do for me? 
Because if God is this kind of God who created the universe, as David says, and if Jesus is in fact creator, as Colossians 1 says he is, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. For by him all things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ, and Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. This is the Savior who died on the cross for your sins and who invites you to come and to live for him. So you don't come to him and you say, hey, Jesus, you're my buddy, buddy. Why don't you be my consultant? Why don't you help me self-actualize like I really want to? You come to him and you say, Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. I submit myself wholly and fully to you. That's the way salvation works. And that's the God that we serve. So we are not as strong as we think we are because God's majesty overwhelms and overpowers us. But also write this down as number two in your notes. And here's the the paradoxical work of God. We are not as strong as we think we are, and yet God uses the weak to embarrass the strong. God uses the weak to embarrass the strong. David writes in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To steal the enemy and the avenger. I think what David is writing in verse 2 is essentially autobiographical. Because what, who was David? David was the smallest and the youngest of his family. The weakest of the tribe. The we, he was from the small podunk city of Bethlehem. He was a nothing. He was metaphorically speaking a, a mouth of babies and infants. And yet God used David, this weakest of the weak, to kill the giant Goliath. Brian just preached on that a few weeks ago. God used this insignificant one, David, the youngest in his family, to embarrass the king Saul. And God made that weak young David, the strong king, fighting Israel's fight, fighting Israel's foe, stealing the enemy and the avenger. And by the way, verse 2, Avenger, that's not a good word. I have to explain that in this day. We're not talking about superheroes here, Avengers, all right? We're talking about those who want to take vengeance against David and against David's God. And God is using the weak ones, the small ones, to conquer the enemy, the Avenger, those who are strong. And by the way, here's, you know, we've been talking throughout our series about the Easter egg moments throughout the scriptures and how the Old Testament foreshadows and points forward to the coming of Christ. There, here's the Easter egg moment for you in relation to verse 2. Verse 2 is quoted in the New Testament. Did you know that? Verse 2 is quoted by the Lord Jesus when he came into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the babes and the children and the peasants from Galilee were talking about Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all the grown-ups, all the strong ones, the Jews, Jewish leaders and the Romans, they rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, no, the children, the babes know better than the grown-ups do. Jesus does that a lot in his ministry, doesn't he? You need to be more like the children, disciples. They know better than you about what's going on here. And Jesus quotes, verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength. And remember, too, I think there's an allusion in verse 2, 
How did the God of the universe come into this world? He came in as a baby born into a stable with animals and placed into a feeding trough. God used the weakness of that moment, the weakness of the incarnation, the weakness of Jesus humbling himself and becoming obedient on the cross in order to save all of humanity and to embarrass the strong. This is the way that God works. David says in verse three, let's turn back now to the power and the glory of his great God. David says, when I look at your heavens, you know, the the skies and the stars, when I look at the work of your fingers, does everybody see that in verse three? God, he doesn't say hands, he doesn't say arms, he says fingers as if God handcrafted the universe in six days, creating it with delicate detail. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Humans didn't put the stars in place. Scientists didn't hang the moon. We barely even understand those things. God put those in place and those luminaries are a testimony that God is glorious and good and he is bigger than us. The old hymn writers wrote of this. Joseph Addison wrote a hymn called The Spacious Firmament on High. And he talks about how the moon and the sun and the stars testify to God. He wrote, in reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice. Forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. Francis of Assisi wrote something similarly, what, 800 years ago, all creatures of our God and King? Tell me if you've heard this before. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, thou rising morn in praise rejoice, ye lights of evening, find a voice, oh, praise him, Oh, praise him, hallelujah. What was Francis writing there? He he was saying that the, the stars and the moon and the sun, they testify that there is a God, and you ain't God. That's what they're writing about. You know what? Those hymn writers, they're taking their cue from David, from the Psalter, from Psalm 8, because that's what David is saying here. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all of those glories which you have set in place. Now watch this. This is important. Listen to this rhetorical question. Because if you don't feel this, if you don't understand the rhetorical nature of this question, you haven't wrestled with this. David goes from those stars and he says in verse 4, what am I in comparison to all that? What is man, little old me, in light of all that you have created in this world? What is man that you are mindful of him? You even think about us, God. And the son of man that you care for him. What is David asking in that question? There's something similar said in Psalm 144, verse 3. This is one of those psalms that really, you sit down and you read it and it hurts your feelings. You really feel small. 
O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. That's pretty humbling, isn't it? I don't like to think of myself that way. I'm strong. I'm, I'm, I'm in the prime of life. I thought anyway. What David is trying to tell us here, and it is truly humbling. He's telling us that we are puny, weak, and frail creatures. And yet, even though we are puny, weak, and frail creatures, God loves his little puny, weak, and frail creatures. And he visits them, and he loves them, and he cares for them. Have you wrapped your mind around that? You really wonder. You wonder like David, God, why do you even care about me? I am so small before this world. And yet the beautiful thing that we do see in the scriptures is that God does care for us and he even willingly died, sent his son as a sacrifice so that we might live. Listen, I've, I think this is heavy on my heart because I have been exposed in the last few weeks to my own weakness, my own puniness, my lack of strength. And whatever, you know, I don't know about y'all, when y'all get sick or when y'all kind of are lethargic or whatever, when I get that way, I get mopey and I get kind of fussy. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you all about it for the last two weeks. And, and I start to get kind of depressed. But, but the good thing about that is in that depression, I start to look and cry out to the Lord and I start to listen to music that makes me think about things in new ways. And I've done a lot of that in the last two weeks. And I've there's a song I've been listening to a lot. It's by a band called Need to Breathe. It's a song called Innocence. And there's a line in that song that has stuck in my head and has been a great prayer and comfort to me. And it goes like this. I want to rest my weary bones on your providence. That's how I felt the last two weeks. I'm not strong, Lord. I am puny and I am weak. And some days I couldn't even get out of bed. Can I do this, Lord? I want to rest my weary bones on your providence. I just want to submit fully to your sovereignty and to your ruling over this world. And I didn't used to sing songs like that. I I didn't used to think like that. You know what I used to think? I'm the captain of my own soul. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm Tony Caffey. I'm going to conquer this world. Yeah, that doesn't work when you've got a microscopic bug inside of you that you can't see that's putting you in bed and you can't even get out of bed. You know what that is? Can I just be honest with you? That's embarrassing. That is so humbling. And I have sat in bed sometimes and just saying, I want to rest my weary bones on your providence, Lord. I am nothing before you. 
And yet in that resting, I have found a God who loves me and who has purpose for my life, even for my suffering. That's what Psalm 8 has taught me. And David's not done here. Because one of the things that he's trying to convey in this psalm is not only that you are puny and weak and frail, but also the other side of that is that you are incredibly significant to the God of the universe. I don't know how those two things paradoxically come together. But I just want to tell you that, that that's the tension that the Bible holds as it relates to humanity. You are puny and weak and frail. Anybody else feeling like that this week? And yet at the same time, you are incredibly significant to the God of the universe and he gives your life meaning and purpose. Here's how David teaches us that. We're not as strong as we think we are because God's majesty overwhelms and overpowers us. God uses the weak to embarrass the strong. And thirdly, here's, here's the paradox. God uses frail humans to govern his world. Let's finish this psalm up. Look at what David writes in verse five. He says, yet you have made him, these human beings, you know, the son of man, these weak creatures, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Everybody see that in verse five? Glory and honor, what? We, us, me? And what's happening here is that David's been reading his Bible. David's been reading Genesis 1 when God created human beings, male and female, in his image and he gave them dominion over the other creatures of the world. And actually he alludes to this here. Verse 6, you have given him, mankind, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Us, lowly us, yeah. All the sheep and the oxen and whatever the beasts are of the field. Birds of the heaven, fish of the sea. Do you know who the king is of the animal kingdom? I, I know you think it's the lion because you've seen the lion king. The lion king lied to you. Did you know that? It's not the first time Disney lied to you, all right? The king of beasts. The king, remember, you know, Simba holding Simba up and everybody bowed before Simba? Fiction. It's fiction, folks. We are the king of the beasts. We are God's greatest creation. God has put all these creatures in this world under the dominion of his, can I use the term, co-regents, human beings, and let us rule over them? Have you ever thought and wondered why is that the case? We're not the biggest. You know, we walk on two legs and other animals are more agile, they're stronger, they're more powerful. Why us? Why would we be king of the beasts? God created us, as David knows, because he's been reading his Bible, because he's read Genesis 1, God created us in his image to rule on his behalf and to have dominion in this world over the creatures. And there is, there is a meaning and significance in that that goes beyond just being king of the beast. We are created for eternity in ways that no other beast is created for eternity. And it is a marvel that God gave us authority to do that. You know, I was thinking about this. Just, just think with me for a moment about some of the crazy things that happen 
in our world with animals. When, when Alistair and I were in Croatia, we were doing some channel surfing on Croatian television and believe it or not, they actually were showing on TV a rodeo that was taking place in North America. So we were like, okay, well, let's watch this rodeo. This looks interesting. So there we are, we're watching a rodeo in Louisiana while we're in Croatia. And have you ever just stopped and thought for a moment about the craziness of a rodeo? Because you have this bull that literally weighs a ton. And we push that bull into a pen and we little human creatures that we are get on top of the bull and we ride it for fun. And then to kind of appease the bull, we dress up like clowns and run around and try to keep the bull from killing us. And, and I was watching this in Croatia, with this rodeo thing, which I was just thinking, why don't the bulls revolt? Why don't they say, we don't want to do this anymore? And why don't they just stampede everybody in that rodeo? Anybody else think like this whenever y'all watch this stuff? Why don't they do that? Because for whatever reason, there is a fear that is put inside of them that causes them to respect humanity and we are rulers over them according to the way that God created us, created in his image to be rulers over mankind. Now that, I mean, that I think kind of explains the rodeo. I can't explain rodeo clowns and I don't know why we do that. It doesn't even make sense. I mean, who was the first guy who thought, let's dress up like a clown and see if we can scare these bulls or keep them from killing us? But that's, that's the authority that God has given us to rule over the animal kingdom. And we take guns into different parts of the world and kill animals that are bigger and more agile and more powerful than us. What's your point, Pastor Tony? Okay, let me hear, here's the point. Forget what I said about the rodeo. Just listen in on this. We are frail, fragile, weak, puny creatures who God loves and God has given power and dominion over this world. And he has created us in his image unlike any other creature in this world. And that's the theological tension that we have in Christianity. That's the theological tension that we have in Psalm 8 that you need to embrace. God, I am a puny, small, weak, frail creature, but at the same time, I am endowed with honor and glory derived from you because I was made in your image and you love me and you redeemed me. And here's why this is important to grasp in our day where there are some really confused ideas about who humans are. So let me close with this. I'll just call this three things that Psalm 8 is the cure for. Psalm 8 is the cure for some really bad stuff in our world. And here's the first. Psalm 8 is the cure for narcissism. What is narcissism? Narcissism is, is self-love. It's inordinate fascination with oneself, excessive self-love, vanity. It's derived, that word, from the Greek god Narcissus who fell in love with his own reflection in the water. You might say, that's crazy. Who, who would do that stuff? Well, we live in a day of selfies and social media and where everybody is obsessed with me, 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 me. 
We live in a narcissistic society. And Paul actually says about the last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that people will become lovers of self. And the Greek word for this is philautos, meaning self-love. In the, in the last days, Paul prophesies, people will be so obsessed with themselves, so blinded by their, so, their own egotism, their own narcissism, that you can't even get through to them with the truth. And people will think that the world revolves around them. And what's the cure for that? What's the cure for narcissism in our society that is epidemic? Here it is. It's Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Not me. The cure is when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are even mindful of us? And the son of man that you care for us. Who am I before you, God? I am a speck on the universe. Spend some time in Psalm 8 and you won't grow narcissistic. You'll grow thankful to the God of the universe who cares for you and loves you and who is infinitely more powerful than you. Here's the second thing that Psalm 8 cures. Not just narcissism, but also nihilism. Psalm 8 cures nihilism. Y'all familiar with that term? Nihilism is a stream of philosophy that concludes that all life is meaningless. All life is pointless. Life, death, religion, morals, it's, it's all utterly meaningless. You live, you die, meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's amazing to me how prevalent that mindset really is in our day. And, you know, it even gets into our music. Remember that Guns N' Roses song, Live and Let Die? You'd be surprised how nihilistic that song really is. When you were young and your heart was an open book, you used to say, live and let live. You know you did, you know you did, you know you did. But if this ever-changing world in which we're living makes you give in and cry, say, live and let die. Let's just live it up and die because life is meaningless. Bertrand Russell, the 20th century atheist and author, he wrote that the universe, as he understands it, is purposeless and void of meaning. He said that the entire sum of human endeavor is destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Great. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist who everybody loves, he said the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So if you listen to atheists, if you listen to the philosophers of our day, this is where you end up. Life is meaningless. What's the point? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what Psalm 8 teaches? No, Psalm 8 and David marvels that God loves us and puts us in charge of stuff. It's anything but meaningless. I heard this last week about a play. You can go on YouTube and watch this play. It's a 35-second play called Breath, written by Samuel Beckett. And in this play, there's the sound of a baby's cry as the stage lights come on. And as the stage lights come on, there's a baby basket and then there's just a stage full of trash. 
And then a few seconds later, that baby's cry is overlaid by the sound of a person breathing his last breath and dying. All while this display on stage has trash. So, so 35 seconds, there's a baby's cry, trash on the stage, and then somebody dies, trash. What's the point of that? What's, what's that playwright trying to convey? Trash. Our lives are trash. You're trash, I'm trash, we're all trash. Would you pay money to go see that play? You don't need to. You can watch it on YouTube. It's like a minute long. You're trash, we're trash, everything's trash. Life is trash. Children are trash. Death is trash. Human beings are trash. Who, you might say, who thinks that, Pastor? Lots of people think that. And if you don't have your understanding of the world anchored in who God is and who God created you to be, you're going to think that too. And you are not trash. You are made in God's image and you carry that image and that responsibility. You derive your essence, your identity, your authority, your being from him. And he loves you and he created you and he redeemed you you are not trash. We live in a world right now where everybody's trying to who, you know, understand human dignity and understand what's the meaning of life and what's the meaning and purpose of our, our existence. Everybody wants to know this because nobody reads the Bible and derives it from there. And so we try to look inside of ourselves and, oh, I'll find my meaning inside of myself. If you do that, you end up with nihilism. You do. And you don't derive self-worth and human dignity from self or from humanistic reasoning. You derive it from God. He bestows dignity on us. And it's only in Him that we find our ultimate identity, our worth, our dignity, our maximum capacity for love, joy, peace, fulfillment, so satisfaction, holiness, meaning. Psalm 8 is a cure for nihilism. Finally, it's the cure for neuroticism. I'll be honest with you, I don't struggle with nihilism. I never have in my entire life because I grew up in a church where they taught the Bible and I listened to teachers who actually believed the Bible. I've never even had an ounce of nihilistic thinking in my life. Now, narcissism, I don't think I struggle with that either. Praise God, I didn't have social media, smartphones, and selfies when I was a kid. We barely had three television channels. But I'll tell you what I struggle with. I struggle with this. I struggle with number three, neuroticism. Thinking that I can control things I can't control. Struggling with anxiety in my heart or neurotic behavior like fear and anger and irritability and emotional instability and an inability to accept things the way that they are. And you know what the cure for that is? The cure is Psalm 8. And resting my weary bones on God's providence. Because here's the place that I, I've got to get to. If God created the universe with all of these stars and has all of this glory, then he knows what he's doing with little old me. And if he's holding the galaxies together, he knows what I'm doing. He knows what he's doing with me, even if I'm going through a period of suffering or struggle. And I can trust him. 
I can go outside at night and look at the stars in the sky and look at the moon and say, you know what? I think God has things under control. I sang that song when I was a kid. I sang it to Alistair when he was little. He's got the whole world in his hands. I've got to remember, here's the cure for neuroticism, that God's got the whole world in his hands and I need to rest my weary bones on his providence. Do you know, Harvest Decatur, in the hardest moments of your life, that God is in control, God loves you, and God is going to bring about his great purposes in your life no matter what? When Satan whispers, narcissistic thoughts, nihilistic thoughts in your head, neurotic thoughts in your head. How do you combat that? Combat it with Psalm 8. And let it minister to you this morning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you care for Him. Yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth.